Hello, everyone. My name is Reese Lindmark, and you are listening to The Reese Show. On the show, we're trying to clarify what a good future looks like. I know we're all a bit sad about late-stage capitalism, and we want to transition to something, but we don't really know what's next. So, on the show, we interview experts about what is emerging, this beautiful future vision that we can all lean into. I hope it gives you a sense of purpose and clarity about the future. If you like the show, you know, feel free to do something about it. (laughs) You can leave us a five-star review. You can tell your friends. You can name your first child Reese. Whatever makes you happy. And if you really dig it, we have an online school called Root, where we help folks understand these root-level systems to find our route forward. We have cohorts of world-class systems thinkers that run every couple of months. So if you're interested in that, check us out at root.co. That's R-O-O-T-E dot co. Thanks. Hello, listeners. Today, I'm excited to chat with Alan Durning. Alan is the founder and executive director of Sightline Institute, a think tank for sustainability in the Pacific Northwest. Alan, thanks for being on the show and welcome. Thanks for having me, Reese. It's really a pleasure. Yeah, excited to dive in. And as Al and I were chatting about before the show, we're going to spend most of today talking about housing. Um, But before we dive into housing, Alan, your background is kind of interesting and cool because, you know, if you look on your, you have a bunch of books and you also through Sightline, you're interested in housing and also carbon pricing and democracy reform. What is kind of the through line that ties all of your Mm. work together? Mm. Yeah, legitimate question. Um, (laughs) The uh, So I spent the first decade after my schooling in Washington, D.C. at a global issues think tank called World Watch Institute. Um, and there I worked on all kinds of aspects of the relationship between social and economic inequalities on the one hand and environmental degradation and, uh, and environmental repair on the other hand. And then um, 28 years ago, I moved back home to the Northwest where I grew up and I founded Sightline to be a regional sustainability think tank that it, the, the mission is to see if we can make the Northwest a model for other places to do things especially well there that would be worth replicating. And so the lens is about sustainability and it needs to be globally significant in terms of sustainability um, so that we're, so that, you know, solutions in our region can be um, worth emulating other places. And then the specific issues that we work on are all especially important to regional sustainability. So they've, they've, they've developed over time, kind of emerged out of the analysis that we're doing and the conversation we're constantly in with people around the region. So we work on democracy reform, for example, because if we can't get our democracy working better to be a better reflection of people's true values and aspirations, um, then it, we can't get any of, the, any of the wins we need in other policy areas. For example, we work on housing affordability because... Um, extraordinarily high housing prices are the Achilles heel of the whole urban sustainability vision, right? Like we're doing a lot of the ideas of smart growth that have been around since the 1990s. We're building around transit. We're investing in alternatives to driving. Um, and, uh, but we're not, we're not ensuring inclusive communities where, where everyone can, uh, everyone can afford to live. So that's yeah. so our our biggest you know the biggest focus of our whole green cities effort is about housing affordability, and cool. specifically about zoning rules. So when I started Sightline twenty eight years ago, I certainly did not think that Sightline's largest program was going to be pushing for zoning reforms. But it just turns out that you know that's that's a crux issue for the region. And you know uh, 
carbon pricing and uh, climate policy is it's more obvious why we'd work on that. And but um, the specific things that we've identified are the places where there's we think there's substantial leverage, where there's a substantial opportunity for a st um, strategic interventions that can lead to dramatic change. We're a, we are the largest progressive think tank in the Northwest, which is really impressive until you compare us to. Um, the rest of the world, right? We have 20 staff uh, and our budget is about the same as a mid-sized used car dealership. And we're, just trying to, we're just trying to change history in the whole Northwest. So we had to be very, very selective and strategic about what we do. Yep. That's cool. That's interesting. I think it's like when you come home and you're like, okay, it's one of those classic things where you start to work on one problem and you're like, oh, but that's really connected. Sustainability is connected to housing, is connected to democracy, is connected to carbon. So it's like, how should we each you know, tie those together? For you, how do you think about one thing that you said that I think is really cool is like creating a model, doing things in, in the Pacific Northwest that could be a model for the rest of the world. Can you give mm -hmm. an example of like um, one or two, like a, a, a thing that you've done there that has been exported elsewhere? Yeah, I'd be, I'd be happy to. Um, Reese, one thing that we've been working on for the last 10 years is to, um, is to prevent the construction of new big fossil fuel facilities, particularly fossil fuel facilities for export. So coal, uh, coal export terminals and oil export terminals and all the, all the pipelines and rail lines and all the rest that goes into that. Because if we're going to move beyond fossil fuels quickly enough to avert the worst dangers of climate change, one thing we need to do is stop building new infrastructure New infrastructure tends to lock us in to, the, uh, to those old, dirty technologies. Um, and so we've been working with great success with a huge coalition of other organizations and uh, local governments and tribes and uh, media outlets and so on all across the region and with, with enormous success now. This program, which we call the Thin Green Line, which is the, the line between the, um, the giant fossil fuel uh, deposits in the Rocky Mountain regions of North America and the fastest growing energy markets in the world, which are in Asia, uh, you know we have a stance to we have a chance to stop the uh, the extraction of those fuels, and it's been enormously successful, right? With with this big movement, we've been able to. I think uh, there were six coal export terminals proposed at one time or another in the last decade, and twelve oil export terminals, and twenty something liquefied natural gas facilities, and petrochemical plants, and so on. So, and we've, we've been able to stop almost every last one of them. In the energy industry now, uh, there's a saying that the Pacific Northwest is where energy projects go to die. Um, so we, we have a lot of pride about that, but, but we have been able to um, export some of the specific tactics, argument types, and, um, uh, and strategies to other parts of North America. So now there's a replica organization related to Sightline in the Ohio River Valley based in Pittsburgh that's working on energy projects there. Um, and some national actors are focusing on using the same kinds of tr strategies in the Gulf states, for example. So that's one example. A second example would be our work on, um, within our work on democracy reform, we've done a lot of work on um, campaign finance reform. And we, we designed the, um, the world's first system of democracy vouchers. Democracy vouchers are a form of campaign finance where you, you mail to every voter in the district um, coupons that they can give to candidates that they like, and the coupons are worth some amount of money. So in, in, this, in Seattle, we give $100 worth of 
um, coupons, and then voters can give them to candidates that they like. Candidates have to agree to a whole set of strict rules and regulations on how they can raise money and spend money and so on if they're going to get the public dollars. But if they if they do, then they can just spend all their time, instead of dialing for dollars from rich people, they can spend all their time talking with voters in their district, just do an entirely people-focused campaign, and they can fund their campaign along the way. It's been tremendously successful in Seattle, and there are um, there are a, a flur- there's a flurry of interest in other places about uh, implementing the same thing. And it's been included in a, in a number of proposals for national reforms and state reforms and so on. It has not yet been adopted and implemented in other cities, but I expect over the decade ahead, we'll see half a dozen implementations at the state and local levels. Wow, cool. Yeah, both of those are awesome. I mean, the first one, super agree. It's like when we get tied into a system, then it's hard to move to the next one. So it's like, let's stop them. You know, six oil, 12 uh, uh, coal, you know, 20 natural gas or, you know, whatever those numbers are. It's like, that's amazing. That's great work. And, it's, and it makes me think too of like, one way to grow and scale things is by, you know, for me coming from more of ish, a, a startup background, sometimes it's like, oh, everybody must use your app, you know, in order to make it scale. It's like, well, another way to scale that doesn't necessarily get you the value capture, but is still lots of value creation is by just exporting the tactics, you know? And so it's like, hey, folks in Pittsburgh, this is a great way to do things. Y'all should do it out there. And then they right. do it out there and it's working out there. And so it's like, I love that kind of do right. something and then, you know, uh, duplicate the model other, other places. Um, and then the other thing about democracy vouchers, that also makes me think, you know, for me, I exist to some extent in like the cryptocurrency DAO, you know, world. And they're so excited about all these new forms of governance and stuff. And that's exciting because there's like a new playground there. But it's also great to like, how can we connect these and pull these things into um, real life? And so like having democracy vouchers uh, mm-hmm. obviously seems like a great way to do some of these slowly but surely working on these campaign finance reforms, HR1, et cetera, that, that we need for a better functioning democracy. Um, so yeah. let's, let's, let's dive into housing for a second. Um, because I think that was what kind of initially drew me to yeah. you and your writing. Um, and for my read or for the listeners here, just to note, you know, Alan's written, uh, you know, over the last kind of year or so, he wrote this amazing series of pieces on, um, housing reform and how to think about housing in this new way, and then connected it into like what we can learn from other places around the world. So it was just, it's this brilliant series. Um, and maybe Alan, I want to start just for our listeners. Could you say, could you kind of explain like the contradiction at the heart of housing policy? Mm. Yeah, I'd be, I'd be happy to talk about that some. Um, um, let me step back a tiny bit for context. Great, yeah, great. So most of Sightline's work on housing is focused on local restrictions on building enough homes. So so the uh, restrictions that are mostly in zoning codes, and some of them are in building codes, that are set mostly at the local level. And the result of them is that we, in most major cities in North America, at least um, cities with with strong economies, we've gone into what we call residential lockdown, where we're building nowhere near as many housing units as there are people who want to live in that community with the result that that the cost of housing um, spirals. And we see here in San Francisco, which is the poster child for the situation, but all of the the coast, the hot economies on the coasts and um, all the other hot, hot economies in North America are evidencing this. We see the same thing in other countries as well to to different degrees. in, in addition to that local problem, right? Um, in addition to that local problem, in the United States, we also have a profound contradiction between um, what it would take to get housing for everyone, affordable housing for everyone, and the um, and the approach that public policy takes towards the housing sector. What I've what I what, what I've written about in a couple of articles is that we don't really have a housing policy in the United States. We have a real estate policy in the United States. Like if you look at how much federal money 
goes into real estate oriented policies, it dwarfs what we spend on housing. So the US Department of Housing and Urban Development spends about $50 billion a year subsidizing housing for, for low-income families. Two-thirds of that goes into vouchers, rent vouchers. Another third goes out to, to, to help the construction of affordable homes, um, which will then be subsidized in one way or another. And meanwhile, we're spending uh, hundreds of billions of dollars through the tax code um, uh, on subsidies to homeowners or to home ownership more specifically. And the way that these, these, these policies are structured, they, um, they massively encourage everyone to treat homes as an investment vehicle, right? So the more money you borrow, the, the bigger tax deduction you get through the mortgage introduction. The more that your home appreciates, the more you get tax-free capital gains on that home, right? Capital gains are tax exempt up to half a million dollars per couple. Um, the, um, the more property tax you pay, the, the bigger the tax break that you get through the property tax deductibility. Uh, and then there's another big form um, of, tax, of tax break to home ownership that is, uh, do I even want to try to explain it? Imputed rent stuff. Treatment of imputed rent. Yeah, we don't right. need to get too deep into, we don't need to deep talk about imputed rent, but there's another thing which sucks. Right. But, yeah. but, so, you know, somewhere between 150 and $250 billion per year that the federal government is, is providing through the tax code that's encouraging everyone to treat housing as a place to invest, as opposed to as a place to live. Uh, and that's just on the tax policy side. And then there's the whole banking and mortgage, mortgage regulation side, where the United States has for decades followed a philosophy of what I call feed the horses to feed the sparrows. That is, to, the, the, the idea is if you support the mortgage banks, they will pump money out and people will be able to, um, to buy housing, right? Um, the, in the, the, horse, the Horse and Sparrows references from John Kenneth Galbraith, um, who many years ago said that, uh, no, no, it wasn't, it wasn't Galbraith. Who was it? The English guy. Ah, he's escaping my name. Mine's escaping me right now. Anyway, so he said, um, uh, John Maynard Keynes. There you go. Nice. Uh, John Maynard Keynes said, um, if you feed the horses, you'll feed the sparrows. And the way that the theory was that the oats would pass through the horse's um, digestive tract and end up on the road, and then the sparrows can come along and pick in the manure. Um, and that is basically the approach that we have. We said we, we, will, we will pump money into, um, into mortgages. We will um, essentially guarantee a bailout for the mortgage sector of banking. And, and therefore, all this money will flow in, knowing that there's a federal guarantee, right, that the institutions are too big to fail. We will look the other way and be and only regulate lightly the securitization of mortgage loans, right? With despite enormous risk to the macroeconomic uh, stability of the economy. So we saw this in the savings and loan crisis and uh, twenty years ago, and we, we saw it uh, thirteen years ago in the global financial crisis, where the entire house of cards of the global economy was imperiled because of underregulation of mortgage lending and this huge sort of um, Ponzi scheme of pouring money into housing and treating it as real estate, right? Now, it's current policy is not as bad as it was in, say, 2005, 2006, 2007, right? We're a little tighter in the regulation in the United States, 
um, and we're not putting quite as much money into the um, on the tax side in terms of tax subsidies. But still, the overall system is one that's designed to encourage people to treat homes as investment vehicles. And this is a fundamental contradiction. You cannot have both affordable housing for everyone and rising home values, right? You have to pick. And basically, the United States has picked rising home values. And then we put a little money in the side into affordable housing programs and subsidies and so on. But the fundamental contradiction has has not been addressed. So yeah. that and that's all piled on top of the local constraints on housing, right? That are written in the zoning codes. Wow. I get That's, a little irate about it. Yeah. Oh my God. I mean, this is you know, it's brutal. <laughs> when you listen to politicians talking about their commitment to home ownership and to affordable housing, and 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 they don't talk about this fundamental contradiction, right? And so, is it any surprise that housing costs are so high in places with hot economies? No, because the system is designed so that investors in real estate will see appreciation. Yeah. yeah. It does not have to be this way, though. Yeah, and then we'll talk about the duh, have to be this way in a second. But yeah, that exactly what you're getting at. This like, and I, I kind of remember like realizing it. I, I had it kind of in my mind. I was like, how does this like? And, and I was telling it to. I, I wrote after I, I like in my newsletter. I you know I, I mentioned your work and I talked about you know I said something like home ownership is bad or something like that. A lot of my friends are homeowners. You know they kind of you know they were you know emailing me and stuff. And it was like one of the the emails I got the most um, you know pushback or whatever. And it, but it's this thing. It's like okay, if there's bananas. And it's like, if we want more bananas, we make more bananas as a people. You know, like, let there be abundant right. bananas. Like, let's just, like, right. flood the market with bananas. But with housing, it's like, no, 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 no. We got to make sure that the housing goes up in value, make it, like, artificially scarce, treat it housing as equity style instead of housing as commodity. And um, right. and that's what you get. You get non-abundant housing, um, and it's really, really brutal. And I think hearing those that's numbers, right. too, just it's cool to hear you talk about all those different layers. There's the local issues. Then there's the, you know, the 50 billion towards rent, you know, towards like uh, helping folks with rent, but then 250 billion with, of tax policy on the other side. And then in addition, all of the kind of um, financialization kind of issues as well. And so it's like, it's a bad system. And, and let me say, one other thing that actually your piece got me thinking was um, just this reframe. And a lot of the folks in the Yimby space are already into this, but reframing it away from affordable housing and towards abundant housing. It's like, we yeah. don't necessarily want things to like affordability. Yes. But like the goal should just be enough homes for all the people that exist. And so like abundance is what we want to create. We want to make, right. we want to create lots of supply instead of subsidizing demand. Um, so, so right. that's all brutal. <laughs> so right. what do you think? What should get into that? What should we do about it? Um, there's mm. some, yeah, t- and like for me, I mean, one of my initial things was like, okay, should we, should we treat it less? Should we give home ownership to everybody? So like continue to treat it as equity, but just have everybody have equity, you know, mm. stake in it. Or should we say, no, 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 it's definitely a commodity. And so like, um, no one should have home ownership. Like, how do you, how do you think about the like answers to this? Yeah, good question. And the, the, the answer of course is multifaceted, but, but let's talk, let's focus on the, um, the kind of macroeconomic stuff for a minute, and then we can turn to the local zoning constraints and so on, because I think there are different strategies and different, there's a different mindset. But on this question, there's a national policy about the subsidization of home ownership and the, uh, and the banking and mortgage regulation. Um, the, my prescription is that tax policy, should be, tax policy should be neutral between owning and renting, right? Owning a home should be a good way to live and a bad way to make money. That's the norm in Germany, in Switzerland, and Austria. 
countries where housing is abundant, rents are much more moderate relative to incomes um, than in the United States and other English-speaking countries. There are places where the tax system is essentially neutral, right? You don't get any tax break for renting. You don't get any tax break for owning. Or if you do, the two are relatively well-balanced, right? Um, and they have, they have plenty of homeownership. Germany has, you know, 40-some 40, 40 percent homeownership. The United States says 67 percent, right? So, but in Germany, you don't get rich by owning a home, right? Your home, your home value is stable. And the goal, the explicit goal of policy in, Germ in Germany is for home values to be stable. Yeah, right? that's the crucial so, piece. Yeah. Recently, there was a, a revolutionary proposal from the government in, in New Zealand that was, that was proposing to make the explicit goal of policy stable house values, right? That's, it shouldn't be revolutionary, but it yeah, is. Yeah. Right? right? Like, <laughs> I'm just laughing so hard over here because for you and I, we're like, oh my God, yes. But like for other rest, it's like, oh no, this is like not right. housing are supposed to make money. You're supposed to make money. That's right. And you you have to pick. Do we want, if we want, if we want housing to be affordable for all, um, it, it, another, I mean, like another dimension of that is like, if you want to stop distorting the entire economy to pump trillions of dollars into real estate values that should be going into the startup economy, that should be going into improving productivity for businesses and for workers and families, right? Like this is a giant macroeconomic problem in terms of productivity and growth. Mm -hmm. It's not just a problem about it makes life hard for working class people. It's also a massive distortion and a massive underinvestment in the things that the economy actually needs more of. We need green technology. We need green infrastructure. I mean, all these things. But meanwhile, we're pouring all, we, all the systems are encouraging people to pour money into real estate, right? So, um, so this, the, the, the prescription is tax policy should be neutral and banking and regulatory policy should be to, to deflate all real estate bubbles immediately and to aim for stable real estate values. Right. Yeah. That, now, it's easy to say that it's really hard to do that when the entire economy and all the political economy that has resulted from it is now built around the expectation of rising real estate values. Yeah. Right. But but you can. But at least if you understand the goal, yes. you can begin to identify what kind of policies you would need. So I, I want to say that we have had we've had remarkable progress on this um, in the 2017 Trump tax cut. Mm -hmm. Somewhat shockingly, there was a huge reduction in the mortgage interest deduction. There was a scale back of the capital gains um, exemption for for homes, and there was a reduction in the in the property tax um, uh, property tax deduction as well. So some so like a a fifty percent reduction in the amount of money flowing annually into tax credits for home investment. And it's amazing. You know, it's amazing. It's amazing. It is. Um, I, I wrote an a long article about the politics of this, and it is conceivable to me that the somewhat bizarre shifting in the composition of the of the two major parties may make the, the United States much more amenable to this kind of these kind of arguments than it has been in the recent past. Right. Um, I won't go into all the all the arcane details about it, but I feel actually slightly optimistic Right, that we may be able to, we may be, we may be able to win changes on the on the tax policy stuff. I don't see exactly how we win on the banking policy, but maybe mm -hmm. we should turn to um, 
maybe we should turn to the you know the zona level. And, and you said like abundance. Abundance is the core concept. Yeah. Well, like people should have the experience in the housing sector that they have when they go into a modern American grocery store, right? Like the experience when you go into a grocery store is, oh my gosh, I can have anything I want, right? People aren't competing to get, you know, the only loaf of bread. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right? They're not like arguing with you, bidding up the price of that box of spaghetti. Yeah. There's, there's just a lots of everything. And you have to make then choices about what's the right trade-offs and people buy different things. Right? But housing should feel like that. Housing should feel like that. And the only way we get to that is if we close the gap that has developed over the last 40 years in the United States between um, our demographics and the housing stock in cities with hot, with hot economies. Now, overall in the United States, there's, there, there is a lot of housing, but a lot of it is in places where people, where people can't find jobs. Mm-hmm. The, whole, the whole Rust Belt. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So how do you think, I mean, I love what you're saying, just like hearing again, this great meme about like stable real, you know, stable housing values, that just being the policy goal and then working from there about right. changing the whole political economy and shifting it. Um, yeah. And that gets into these difficult, I love the, the grocery analogy too, kind of similar to my banana one, but better. Um, and as you said, there's all those ones, those macro ones, the Trump stuff actually was pretty good for it. And then the financialization tougher. How do you think about the, like local zoning laws? Because for me, that's kind of one of the harder things, because something yeah. that I, that we talked about before is like, okay, there's all of this housing as equity versus housing as commodity baked into the tax code, but there's also this feedback loop between what the tax code thinks and what the humans think. And so all sure. of the, my friends and everybody, even these liberal folks, they're all like, oh no, like, you know, like not as much housing, or, and they don't say it. Some of them are YMBs and stuff, but like, how do you think about local, po- and I think about local policy and, and, yeah. and, and NIMBY organizations, it's the difficulty in local control. How do you think about how to change things on that local level to get the zoning uh, better? Yeah. So this is this is a separate, but of course related issue to the national level uh, banking and and tax policy questions. And it is in some ways, um, uh, as of you know, ten years ago, it was an unsolved problem. I think we're figuring out ways to solve it now. I am I'm feeling cautiously optimistic. Um, we still have a long way to go, but we we now have um, won substantial victories at the city level and at the state level. Um, against the worst forms of exclusionary zoning and ex- excessively restrictive zoning, right? So um, maybe not yet in San Francisco. SB9 was a nice thing for all of California, yeah. which was great. Right. So California has now legalized duplexes on every single family lot, or almost every single family lot in the state. That's an enormous victory. It's an enormous victory and huge credit to all of the, all the Californians who've been working for that. And everyone all over the place who has been making this point that, that um, our political assumptions about land use are outdated, right? We're operating with like a 1970s smallest beautiful mindset. And, you know, I read E.F. Schumacher and I still get misty. Like, I'm old enough that 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 philosophy, you know, resonates for me. And and the idea that, you know, that the right way to live and the green way to live is is to have a lot of have a big yard and trees all around you and so on. And just one one family per lot. But the reality, meanwhile, has changed. And and um, so we've come an enormous distance in the last decade, but still in most places in the United States, 
uh, 75%, in most cities in the United States, 70, 75% or so of land is reserved for single detached homes. Wow. Um, and uh, almost all of the growth in, in construction of homes in the last 20 years has been in um, uh, very dense pockets in the, in the close-in areas of cities in apartment buildings or on the exurban fringe, right? Um, so we have, and that's the pattern that, that I referred to before as residential lockdown. We have recent, we have, you know, the number of homes being built is now is lower than it was in the 1960s and 1970s, though our populations are larger and growing just as fast, mm-hmm. right? So we are just dramatically underbuilding, just dramatically underbuilding. And, um, this is a problem in, uh, very much a problem in, in Seattle, Portland, and Vancouver, BC, the three big cities where Sightline works, uh, but also in smaller outlier cities like Boise, Anchorage, cities which are in red states, not blue states. Um, so the, like, the solution to all this varies a little bit by place, in terms of the politics of the place and so on. But, but the overall story I want to tell you is this is a giant problem and we are finding solutions to it. We are finding solutions to it. We're starting to win some victories. Yeah. And, and specifically with things like um, taking away some of the exclusionary zoning or – and I actually really liked your article about New Zealand because, like, they just made a law that was like, look, they had real issues with, like, their increase in um, property values. It, you know, it's up from – it's up 200%, you know, uh, 3x since uh, 1990 or whatever. And so they said – hey, they just made – they removed all the parking lot uh, restrictions or parking restrictions. And they just said anything near a transit center can be at least six stories, you know. Yeah. Um, and it was just like, you can do this, you know. And so I think that's – part of what something like SB9 or some of the other victories you've had kind of show us is that this is possible. I also think one thing that you hit on there, which is actually really important is this vision. And I actually want to double click on that for a second. Cause it's like, yeah, we've been told this vision of the American dream, or at least, you know, I was kind of told this and my parents definitely told us or whatever. And it's like, okay, yeah, single, you know, family, you know, green grass, you know, two car garage, et cetera. And then when I tell people, I used to tell people, Hey, San Francisco has like a third the density as Japan and everybody's like, Oh God, I don't want to be like Japan or whatever. And so I, now I say, Oh, um, San Francisco is a third the density as Paris, which is also true. Um, but they're like, Oh, Paris, like I want to be like Paris. Um, how do you think about, um, a vision that you kind of want to pitch to people? Like, this is what like living in a city should be like, you know, if it's not, or like living, if I have a wife and kids or whatever, and we like, are we going to, if we don't live in the suburbs with a nice house and car, like what do we do? Like in the density with all the apartment buildings or what? Yeah. Well, first of all, the, 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 um, the abundant housing movement um, or the YIMBY movement as um, it's sometimes called it's, it is not saying you can't live in a house is not, it's not against any housing type. It's just against restrictions on construction, more suitable on construction of all types of housing for everyone who wants to live in our cities, right? So what it's saying is right now we have this massively imbalanced set of rules and regulations that restrict in most metropolitan areas, 75% of the land for only one housing type, which is the most expensive housing type. And that is a single detached house on its own lot, right? And the time that that's an outdated form. It is bad for the climate. It's bad for social mobility. It's bad for economic growth. It's, uh, it is bad for racial and class integration. And it is time that we allow more types of housing all over the cities, right? So um, so there's, you know, the, 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 the fight ends up being at the, 
has ended up being at the local level for um, uh, you know changes in zoning rules. But but I'm going to come. I'm going to circle around. I promise you, I'm going to come around and answer your question about what my what my vision is. Right. Um, but I want to talk a little bit about the kind of political economy analysis that I'm trying to engage Great. in the series of articles to refer to about winning abundant housing, which is, which is an attempt to kind of move to a, a level of political theory. Sightman has a staff about six working on this, and we've got all kinds of detailed arguments to help win specific, uh, specific issues. Um, but I'm trying to move up a level and think about what's the structure of the fight. Okay. Yeah. Um, and a key dimension of it takes us back to home ownership, right? Because what we find is that in most places, uh, homeowners are the overwhelming share of voters. And they, they, because all of the incentives have encouraged them to invest in their home as their most valuable asset and as their path to increased assets, right? The way that they're going to be able to retire, the way they're going to be able to, you know, pay, send it, help send their kids to college, what have you. Right, there are intense pressures on them to uh, to defend their property values and to be to be risk averse about changes in local rules, and that is the root explanation here. It's not that anyone's bad; it's that 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 the pursuit of people that folks um, pursuit of their own self interest makes them risk averse, and so the solutions that we need to implement are ones where um, where no one, where not very many people suffer a big a big loss in their assets, right? Now the good news is that that that, um, that most folks' property value actually goes up when you allow them to build more types of housing. Um, but they but they're risk averse. Like there's a chance it'll go down, and we know we know that human psychology is asymmetrical with respect to losses and gains. Right? People are more worried about minimizing losses than they are hoping to get wins, right? So this is that's like the root core issue here that politics struggles with and why most places have gone into residential lockdown, even though they're in the United States, there are whatever 22,000 cities and counties that are making zoning decisions. And almost everywhere, the zoning has ended up being really restrictive. And it's because of this root, you know, Human psychology. So, so we we have to first acknowledge that and not make this like a morality play of like good people against bad people, right? It's not is not that, right? We have to figure out policies and strategies, political strategies that can work, um, and that's the purpose here that I've been focusing on in my in my research. So, so um, um, we have had wins, and we have wins in cases where we have been able to. Uh, mobilize the constituencies who stand to gain from abundant housing um, and give them political voice. Those are important strategies in themselves. Like so, so for example, we know that um, we know that getting renters to actually participate in politics helps um, helps get wins. And then um, the other the other big thing that that the movement in in North America has been doing is been moving from the from the city level to the state level, right? And the move to the state level is really important because it changes the game. It change, changes who shows up, right? When you move to the state level, then big employers will participate in discussions of land use rules. And trade unions will participate in discussions of land use rules. And tenant advocates and the AARP 
And all of the all of the folks who have an interest in big economic policy will show up. They're not going to show up for a city by city fight over the local zoning rule. Right. They have an interest in it, but um, the only one who shows up for the local zoning rules are the, the a few NIMBY homeowners and the person who's trying to build the new project. So moving to the state level is a key strategic choice. And this confirmed by my analysis of the process of change in other countries, the countries that do housing well, Japan and the German speaking countries in, in Europe, um, they have different paths, um, but they have transformed the politics. In, in Japan, the situation is that, that all the decisions are made at, the higher, at a higher level. They're made at the national level. Japan is a very centralized um, country in terms of decision making. But that changes the game. And so by moving to the state level, we get a little bit more of the J Japan model in the mix. Different constituents show up and, and participate in the fight, which is how California, by moving to the state level, was able to, to legalize duplexes statewide, able to legalize accessory dwelling units statewide, and a number of other wins over the last few years. Right? Yeah. How yeah. In, or in Oregon, we have been able to win duplexes statewide. And in fact, in all large cities by state law now, fourplexes are allowed on almost every urban lot. And um, so, you know, we could go around and, you know, talk about the, the movement in other places, but the move to the state level is, is, is a key strategy and it's because it brings more constituents in to the fight. All right. Um, what, what, what no one in North America is yet doing well is what Germany and the German speaking countries in, in Central Europe do. And that is to create incentives for localities to welcome more homes. In Germany, local governments get about a quarter of their funds it, according to a, a formula that rewards them for having more population, right? So whereas in the United States, localities participate in what's called fiscal zoning, where they try to avoid the types of land use that are going to cost them more, rev more, revenue, more, uh, more revenue than they bring in, typically um, they will avoid apartment buildings. Um, in Germany... There's sort of the localities are kind of competing to attract more people because that's how they increase their uh, that's how they increase their um, their local budgets. Um, similar things in Switzerland and and in Austria and so in in the Northwest we at Sightland have begun introducing bills in the legislature that would start to incentivize cities so that they get a direct reward for adding more homes. We've we we just. Uh, we just had, well, one legislative cycle where we started to work that idea, and and we saw the cities become big supporters of this. But we haven't we haven't won the uh, won the fight yet. Wow! So those are the two big strategies: move up to a higher level of government and create incentives for cities. Yeah, I love it. I think I think it makes me think of a couple things. A, and kind of just like popping off the stack there. I love what you said about hey thinking about the political economy, but actually thinking about like the structure of the political economy, like what is it the root cause here? And, and as yeah. you said, it's like, yeah, these folks who are defending their property values, which makes sense. And that's why some of the like the Yimby versus NIMBY language can be negative in a, in a way, because just this binary classic like meme that spreads. Sure. But actually, it's not like the Yim even though that you and I are like of the most Yimby or whatever, like I wouldn't want to even call myself a Yimby, you know, and I wouldn't want to like tell some, oh, you're a NIMBY, you're so bad. It's like, what you do it makes sense. You know, it's like that, that's, that's all good. And so I think that like that kind of polarization is bad. I think that this, which is kind of why the reframe to abundant housing I'm into. Yeah. Um, and then, as you said, I think 
there are these just like human psychology things. The risk, you know, loss aversion is <laughs> is a thing that humans have, and we should talk about that. And we should talk about how that then makes us, you know, sure. build less housing. And so it's like, and it makes me think of some other things that exist on like the coding side, where it's like, you know, adding more, co- like you get lots of spaghetti cones. And so you, instead, what you should try to do is like be very, very chill with like adding new code because it's we're so much more game to add more code than it is to take away code so it's like you should just know where entropy is heading and things like that um and so i think that there's a a similar thing happening here and as you noted it's like okay once you understand this kind of um the deep down kind of desire for um local property values to rise then you can get the renters more power you can do the kind of incentivize uh, locally piece, um, which we're trying to do here, but as other other places do it, or you can kind of move up a level um, and, and kind of, and I'm, yeah. I guess it's interesting because I guess we have had success in America moving up to the state level. The federal level obviously seems difficult. And then the local level, I guess we just haven't tried that much, but that'll be, I'll be curious to see how that works. Well, no, I, I think that we tried the local level for, for years and years and years and mostly lost. Oh, okay. Are, I mean, there are, there are counterexamples and there are cities that have been, that have been doing a lot better. Um, but I think it's a, it's a, you know you got to pick the arena where you're going to you know you're going to have your fight and the more local you get the larger the interests of incumbents that is homeowners uh, the larger those interests loom yeah yeah right that makes sense it gets it you know the moving up the ladder you bring in more constituents and then and then and then the decision makers are weighing more concerns more interests yeah right. Yeah. Yeah. So how do you, how do you think about one thing that I want to like ask here is there's this great new uh, New York times uh, video that was about, I'm not sure if you saw, it was like, it was looking at um, kind of like signaling progressivism, which exists these days where it's, whether it's in San Francisco or in Seattle and things like that. It was like looking at like the people who are really into signaling, but then like the progressives were like, yeah, we're signaling. Like it says in the democratic platform, like we want housing values to be fair or whatever. And then you look at you know, housing, you know, 800,000 new jobs in the Bay Area and only 200,000 new houses or whatever. And it's like, yeah. and it, it just went through, and it, said, it showed the one that I didn't know was in Washington, I guess, that the tax code in Washington is like very unequal. Um, and it's like, and, but oh, it's very unequal. Well, of the top 10 states, three of them are blue that have these super unequal, the most unequal tax codes. How do you think about like the work that you're trying to do in this kind of like impact on that side versus like the current state of like, progressive politics or like signaling or like, how, how do you think about that? That's a really great question. Um, because um, the places that are the worst offenders on housing abundance are um, under one party rule by Democrats. Exactly. <laughs> um, and um so this is a pro- this problem of housing abundance is is a problem that Democrats could fix, in most cases, right? I mentioned before that we're that Sightline is working in <clears throat> um, places like Anchorage and Boise that are in red states, and we need different kinds of arguments, right? Um, I think that um, uh, there's a few a few points to make here. One is that we need to uh, teach the choir a different song, and we're making progress on that. Right. Like there is now a, a lively debate within the progressive world between the abundant housing people and the kind of older school um, view, um, which is a little harder to articulate what it is exactly. But it's, it's sort of an anti-developer narrative. Right. Um, anti-market, like market solving something. Oh, you know, it's like, oh, you know. Yeah. Well, 
Well, there's some really interesting analysis about this, that um, that the way that our political discourse has evolved in the United States, as in most industrialized countries, is um, that the right has, um, uh, well, its own story. Um, become but, more authoritarian, as judged by various different more things. More recently, yes. But yeah. um, but that that the right is essentially anti-government, mm-hmm. right? That has historically been, you know, the, the, the post-World War II role of the right has been skeptical of all government things. And the left has been for um, regulation, more regulation of the market, and then, some, and then some subsidization at the bottom of the market, right? And so if you present a problem, if you have a problem in a, in a, in a left-ruled place where the problem is over-regulation, the left doesn't really have a um, the neural pathways well-developed to recognize that. Right. Like my view is that the United that the U.S. economy, like most industrial economies, is rather underregulated at the at the macro level around certain huge problems like climate change or the systemic risk posed by uh, too big to fail financial institutions, but is is quite overregulated at the local level on issues like building. Right. But that's not like a learned discourse that's hard to hard to put in a, a city council campaign. Right. And so it just takes some time of educating and re-educating and building movements and so on that says, no, actually, the problem that we have is a shortage, right? Um, anyway, so the, the, left's, the left's go-to solutions are more subsidy and more regulation. And so we end up with, rather than, rather than a reform movement within the left that says, well, the reason that Airbnb is such a huge controversy, for example, is because we have a housing shortage and... Tighter regulations on Airbnb, as good as that's going to feel to us, and whereas the, you know, no matter how good that's going to fit into our left paradigm that says uh, pro-market players are suspect, and the bigger they are and the more profitable they are, the more we should regulate them. Um, the right answer is probably, oh, well, we probably should tax those activities and make sure that they're paying, they're paying like a hotel tax. And then we should recognize that there's an enormous shortage of housing. Right. Then we should build a lot more housing. And in fact, there's recent research that shows that places that have not regulated Airbnb are having more rapid increase, big, bigger investment in home building and places that have tightly regulated Airbnb are seeing a drop off in home building. So that, that's like that's to take the fight to the hardest place for us. Like there's even less sympathy for Airbnb than other things. <laughs> but but um, up and down the line. Right. Like the the. The big city left Democrat impulse is, well, let's stick it to the landlords. Let's regulate them more, right? Let's um, let's subsidize more. Let's allow let's allow construction of buildings, but put tight rules on that say, well, a quarter of the units have to be for uh, rent regulated for low income households, right? And some of that's okay. I, um, we do need more equity in the system. My personal, uh, you know, Sightline's belief is that the best way to, to do that is to provide um, uh, housing vouchers as an entitlement or better universal basic income or even just a child allowance, right? Giving people money is a better solution than trying to get each individual building to have tight rules about what how many of their units are going to go to people at what income levels, right? 
Like let builders build buildings and then let's give poor people money yeah. so they can afford to move there. Which, which by the way, is what was, which by the way is what France does very well. France mm-hmm. uh, is a social democracy, and and the way that they provide most housing to poor and middle class, lower middle class families is is very generous um, housing vouchers, um, and they trust people to then use the vouchers on housing if that's what they want to spend on. Or in fact, but in fact, no one's checking. If they decide that instead they wanted to go to the grocery store and buy, you know, more bread, they can do that too. So, um, but this is, I mean, this this should be something that's good about this problem, that it's, it is not a partisan fight, but it does take a different kind of, um, uh, mm, a different kind of organizing within progressive places. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and I see that it's, it's, the way it's breaking down in the Northwest is sort of a generational argument within the Democratic Party. I am 57. I'm the youngest age to still be a baby boomer. People, people who are my age and older, I think, are in an in an in a um, in an earlier generation of progressivism. I think people that that are um, Gen Xs and especially millennials are much more ready to uh, embrace the idea that the, that the root problem we have here is shortage of housing. And if, you def- if, you, if the frame for the problem is we have a housing shortage, then it's a lot easier to solve it. If the frame is uh, landlords are charging too much or developers are gouging, right, then we get to the wrong answers. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I think, and what you said there is, um, yeah, just having just a slightly more nuanced view of like, instead of just like regulation, good, you know, it's like, okay, we have under-regulation at the federal level and over-regulation at the local level. And even just getting that. And then, as you said, just like this key frame of just in the word switch of abundant housing issues, we don't have abundant housing, talking about the grocery store, those kinds of things um, can get people into this mindset. And then showing them also, it's like, you can, and that's why I love some of these things like this recent New York Times video. It's like, okay, this is literally what it says in the Democratic Party platform. And then you look in these top three places, you know, they're one party ruled by Democrats. So what what's going on here, people? And and I think that hopefully having, yeah. um, and this gets into network democracy yeah. and things like that, but having politics where the people's values get more represented in the representatives and that those representatives are not just doing public performance, but are doing more kind of like private policy and policy that's like, you know, transparent with its outcomes or whatever. Um, So that is exciting. And we're getting into rap mode here. I'm thinking about, I guess maybe my final kind of uh, going away question for you is, Hmm. I mean, I guess, you know, so, so it sounds like, so if you, if, if you're a random person listening, um, or if you're just me, you know, living in one of these like urban cities, um, how do you think, uh, what would you tell them as they go forth in their life in terms of like, um, either why to be optimistic or the things that they should do in their day to day, um, to kind of, you know, get excited by possibly this abundant housing future. Hmm. Hmm. Well, the first the first thing is to is to remember that um, that the building sector of the economy, the housing sector of the economy, is um, both massively consequential in so many ways for our lives, right? The quality of our lives and uh, our personal personal economies, uh, our our bank balances, also our carbon emissions, and so on. is massively important, massively important, and also. Uh, uh, quite slow in changing, right? We write, you know, we, we have huge fights over over planning policies that take several years to get implemented. And then 
then the the planning policies don't get built out for a decade or two. So right? sad. I'm so sad about this thing, by the way. It's like, yeah, it's like, oh, yeah. in California, we got this plan that's going to have the regional uh, housing allocation thing. It's like, okay, well, that's going to build 440,000 more units by 2035 or something. It's like, oh, right. no, like the zoning just needs to be ready by then. And then the housing can get built. It's like, oh, that's a long timeline. It's a long timeline. Yeah. But um, I mean, th- this is, I. it's important that we set expectations realistically, right? Okay. So the first is it just takes a long time. But the second is, but we're actually making progress, right? We have had big wins uh, at the state level in California, in, in Oregon, in a, in a bunch of cities now. And the wind is at our backs. We're going to have a lot more wins in the time ahead. We're going to have um, we're, we're going to see cities sort of leapfrogging over each other to do more dramatic things. So, so the city of Portland um, has adopted a rule that allows a fourplex on almost every single family lot in the city. And you can do six if two of them are um, subsidized for low-income families. Six, right? So we went from one to six, uh-huh. right? So, you know, who's going to, um, so now we need to get all the suburban cities around Portland to, you know, to go to four, they're probably not going to go to six, but like we're making progress. Now it's going to take another 20 years to build a lot of that stuff, but it took us 40 years to get into this mess. And so, you know, if it takes us 20 years to get out, well, that's the best we can probably hope for. And, and that's, you know, I think that's good enough. I think people need to lower their expectations and then hold hold their leaders even more accountable. Beautiful. Yeah, I love that. And I think um, and I just want to thank you personally for doing this work for a long time, uh, you know, fighting those hard fights over and over again, talking with people, empathizing with them, thinking about the political economy and the metapolitical economy, um, and just excited for the work you're doing. And again, for my listeners, if you want to, A, check out like Sightline, I think it's just sightline.org. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and then they're on Twitter, and then check out Alan's. I'll put them in the show notes, but these great, a bunch of these pieces are just like, as I was thinking about stuff, I was like Googling it, and I saw Alan's stuff, and I was like, oh, this is great, and then I read the whole series, I was like, oh, all these are great. Um, so definitely worth checking out all that work. And Alan, is there anything else you want to say for our listeners, either places to check out Sightline or anything else to get involved? Yeah, Sightline, S-I-G-H-T line. Uh, and, um, well, I appreciate, Reese, what you're doing. And I appreciate whatever, whatever else is struggling, struggling forward through. It's, it's a difficult time for folks who share our values, um, but we are making progress. We yeah. really are. Let's just keep. We just got to keep at it. Together, we're yeah. going to get to. A, we're going to get to a much better outcome in the years. I agree. Ahead. Forty All years right. in, twenty years out, we got this, people. Um, <laughs> thank you again, Alan, and right. goodbye, everybody. Thanks for listening. Bye.